following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. Well, this morning, we come back uh, to Romans. We come back to this great book, this incredible book, the letter that has been called the greatest letter ever written, that Martin Luther, when he read it, said that the opening, it was as if the doors of heaven were opened to him, the doors of paradise, and that he looked into it, and that this Catholic priest in the early 1500s, there in Wittenberg, studying and being a professor of theology, read through Romans. And not only was his life personally forever changed, but the history of the world was forever changed because he read Romans. Because he sat and the Holy Spirit, through the power of the Scriptures, came alive for him. And he began what we know today as the Protestant Reformation, of a reforming of the church in Rome, of looking and seeing these great truths of salvation, that it's through Scripture alone, that our understanding of Christ alone, by grace alone, faith alone, and all done to the glory of God alone, those great solas of the Reformation that we still live out today. And in his opening remarks on his commentary on the letter to the Roman church, Luther said this, this letter is truly the most important piece in the New Testament. It is purest gospel. It is well worth a Christian's while, not only to memorize it word for word, but also to occupy himself with it daily, as though it were the daily bread of the soul. It is impossible to read or to meditate on this letter too much or too well. The more one deals with it, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. We find in this letter then the richest possible teaching about what a Christian should know. The meaning of law, gospel, sin, punishment, grace, faith, justice, Christ, God, good works, love, hope, and the cross. We learn how we are to act toward everyone, toward the virtuous and the sinful, toward the strong and the weak, friend and foe, and toward ourselves. Paul bases everything firmly on Scripture and proves his points with examples from his own experience and from the prophets so that nothing could be desired, that nothing more could be desired. Therefore, it seems that St. Paul, in writing this letter, wanted to compose a summary of the whole Christian and evangelical teaching. Without a doubt, whoever takes this letter to heart possesses the light and the power of the Scriptures. Therefore, each and every Christian should make this letter the habitual and constant object of his study. Grant us, God grant us grace to do so. Every Christian should make this letter the habitual and constant object of his study. We are doing a primer at best. We are moving through this letter at a pace that is incredibly rapid. John Piper, I believe, spent six years on chapters 1 through 11 that Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones spent six years going through the entirety of the book, that some of the greatest preachers and orators have spent upwards of a decade preaching through Romans. 
It was so rich. Donald Gray Barnhouse in Philadelphia spent 10 years preaching on it. And some of you would look and go, are you kidding? Romans again? Come on, preacher. But what they found was that within it contained the essence of doctrine. And from it sprung our understanding of worship and our understanding of life as Christians. How we view the world, how we frame everything. Last week we were wrapping up the theological section on looking at Israel and coming through 9, 10, and 11 in those chapters and how Paul was saying God still has a special place for the Jewish people. He is still faithful to his promises. And if God is not faithful to his promises uh, in the Old Testament, then how can we have any assurance that he would be faithful to his promises in the New Testament? And, And we see Uh, that God is still working out His plan of salvation even within the lives uh, of the Jewish people in the world. And we noted that in the 20th century alone, there were more conversions from from Judaism to Christianity than in all the centuries leading up to that. But also, we said that what what I was not talking about was the nation-state of Israel. That wasn't a political statement. But that God, it was really nothing to do with the land but that God is working out His promises in a mysterious way, in some way, in the lives of the Jewish people. And we as Gentiles should stand in awe and be incredibly humbled in this way. We can't stand with any arrogance that says that God had pulled away the branch of Jews from the root and engrafted the Gentile branch. But we should, with great humility would say if He was able and willing to do that for us, Can't he and won't he still have a love for his own people? And so Paul was at that same place. And he came at the end of this chapter 11 in talking about the beauties and the mysteries of God's sovereignty within salvation. That he comes to the end of these first 11 chapters. Now remember, he didn't write in chapters. But he was in this first part of his letter. That he came. And as he comes to this where we are today... He wrote what we would call a doxology. Doxa, which simply means glory, and lagos, which means to say or a word. It just means a praise saying. And he came, and at the end of this time, of thinking about all that he'd written, he wrote this summary. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And he put his pen down. It could have ended there. To say, folks, when you study the depths and the profundity of the doctrine of Christ and of the gospel, and you peer into the Godhead of the beautiful relationship between God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, That you come and you recognize the fallen condition of man. 
and that we stand universally under the condemnation and judgment of God. But yet God, rich in mercy, sent His Son into the world that He might become the very hope for all who would believe in Him. That God who is the initiator of salvation, a God who is both severe and kind, a God who is faithful to His promises. When you consider these things, it leads you to a place to go and from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. All glory be to Him. Amen. It leads you to worship. It leads you to be amazed at who He is. The study of theology and of doctrine is never dusty and old and boring. And if it is, let me let you in on something. You're studying it incorrectly. It should move your heart. As Jonathan Edwards says, it moves your affections towards God. To see who He is. And so today we're going to look at the beautiful connection between doctrine and worship and obedience or the Christian life. That that chain is held together. And that if one of those areas is not properly balanced, then the whole chain begins to fall apart. And so we're going to begin where Paul began. Paul began with theology. He began with doctrine. And then he moved on, and that doctrine informed his worship, the verses that we're considering specifically today. And then it bled right into, now therefore, present your bodies as a holy sacrifice unto the Lord, living for him. It led right into, you see, Proper orthodoxy, what you believe, what you understand and know to be true, it leads to proper orthopraxy, how you live. And so if you've got it wrong on this side of the equation, we talk here at the church uh, in terms of the the indicative and the imperative. If you have the indicative wrong of who God is, who Christ is, what the gospel is saying, if you have that wrong, then the imperative of what you're supposed to do is going to be either incorrect or misinformed, and so you'll be doing it for the wrong motives and without the proper power. And so today, we're going to start with theology, and I know you're excited about that. I mean, you woke up this morning, I'm sure, and you went, theology, the study of God proper. You just jumped right out of bed, didn't you? Most people would think of it more this way, like these bumper stickers. I don't need theology, just give me Jesus. No creed, just Christ. Deeds, not creeds. Christianity is a life, not a doctrine. Well, those may sell well, and they may look good on the back of your truck or car. But if you have one of those on your car today, would you please do me and the entire Christian church a favor. Remove it. I'd rather you have coexist, because we are supposed to coexist together within a pluralistic world. It doesn't mean all are equal, but at least it's more reasonable to say we are to coexist. God in the Eden said coexist Satan with good, that there was a coexistence. I'd rather you have that on than one of these. Because you see, what this is really saying about the church 
is something that the Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Research did a study recently and found that Protestant evangelicals, confessing Christians within America who say that they're born again, trying to weed it down from those who just attend church, 11% strongly agreed that Jesus was the first creature created by God. 17% of born-again evangelical Protestant Christians believe that the Father is more divine than Jesus, or another way to put it, that Jesus and the Holy Spirit are less divine than God the Father. And 35% of these polled uh, believe that the Holy Spirit to be a spiritual force rather than a personal being. You see, our basic theology is wrong. Our basic theology is incorrect. And if our basic theology is incorrect, uh, it is uninformed because these issues, especially those three, were dealt with hundreds of years ago in councils of the church, Nicaea and others. We've lost our connection with the truth of the Bible and we've lost our connection with the history of the church. And so it's no wonder why the American church is floundering about as it is and that we're staking our hope on the next presidential candidate rather than on the all-creating, all-sustaining, glorious, gracious, severe, and merciful God of the universe. We don't know God well enough to trust Him fully or to worship Him with all that we are. You see, theology, folks, if you're wanting to take away something today, take this away. Theology is important. It's imperative. Andrew Shank, who oversees, he's our assistant pastor who oversees at least part of his ministry, is to look over the Resource Center. And there is a wonderful section within the Resource Center that's on theology proper. We haven't sold much, have we, in that area? Not much, if any, at all. But we've sold lots of books about how to raise children and how to be a better spouse and children's books themselves and Christian living, and all of those. We've sold lots of books that have to do with chapters 12 uh, through 15 of Romans, but almost no books that have to do with Romans 1 through 11. Because you see, what we're saying is this, and by the way, I think I know it, it's not because you already have all those books at home. <laughs> Burkhoff's systematic theology was not on the New York Times bestseller this week but it should be on the shelf of every single Christian. Because what we're saying is this. What I know really isn't all that important. The study of it, I mean, so if I kind of can do or sort of can do and maybe know a little bit about these things. But consider for a moment just a few of the topics that Paul spent the majority of his time on in the first section, the, the, the largest sections of this letter. The good news of the gospel. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Would you be able to share with someone what gospel is? What the good news actually is? Understanding that it's the power of God. That God is the source of that power within salvation for the Jew first and then to the Gentile. To understand the intricacies and the beauties of chapters 9, 10, and 11 with all their complexities. But would you be able to unpack that a little bit? Paul says it's incredibly important. The fallen condition of mankind that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That God has placed on the heart of every human being his law. And they've suppressed it in unrighteousness. But it's there 
and that, that they've been now sit, and we understand in these that there is a wrath of God that comes against all of creation and humanity. In these first 11 chapters, we see a theology of Christ, that he's fully human and fully man. And by the way, he was not created. Cults believe that, but Christians don't. That Christ is fully God and fully man. That he coexisted in equal power and glory with the Father from all times. Equal with the the Holy Spirit and glory. That we learned that justification is by grace alone and not by works of the law. And that justification is a one-time act of God's free grace by which you are declared righteous. Christianity isn't an effort, it's a declaration. You are declared to be a Christian, you are not trying to be a Christian. But from so many people, I've lived my whole life trying to be a good Christian. The reality is this, you are a Christian. Live your life in light of that. I ask the question, even within the context of our own church, what do you know and understand about justification? And the answer I got back, and I asked, how many times do you need to be justified? The answers were, many, often, daily. We don't know our theology. If you think that you have to be justified more than once, then you will be working incredibly hard to become justified. That you will never find a peace within that. That Paul spent great amount of time on that salvation is not by works of the law, but by grace. He spent time on the righteousness of God and the wrath of God. That adoption that you are now, by the work of the Holy Spirit, called sons and daughters of the King, and you cry out from within your heart, Abba, Father, That it is not only a legal standing, but it is a relational standing. That the God who is the judge of the universe, who declares you to be righteous, is also your Father who says to you, Son, daughter, come in. And Christ, your elder brother, is there next to you on your behalf. And it's this awesome truth. We talked about the difficult but beautiful doctrines of election and of predestination and of sovereignty. And those, by the way, are not Presbyterian or Reformed in nature. They're biblical because Paul wrote them. And he said, God is the ultimate beginning of all that is good. If man is sinful and fallen and has no good within them, how would he ever choose a good God unless this good God first initiated salvation on his behalf in his heart? As R.C. Sproul said, we still choose God. God just changes the chooser so that we would. We looked at God's purposes with Israel. We heard when Andrew preached of evangelism and how will they know if no one goes? How will they respond if the word isn't preached in the role of the Holy Spirit? You see, Paul seemed to care about theology. What you think matters, friends. Presbyterians historically were called people of the book because they studied the Word. Some of the greatest movements within the church historically have come from Presbyterian and Reformed people who went out under this knowledge of the sovereignty of God and in their theology of the beauty of God's reconciling work within creation. And they went and they began the China Inland Mission because they believed God could convert people in China. 
And they went into the depths of Africa believing that God could convert within the depths of Africa. And they went into the inner cities of America because they believed that God could convert within them. And they preached the gospel and they believed that God could do work because they were so committed in their theology that it led them out. It led them to stand to be martyred before God and before men and to stand firm and to say, but I know my God has not failed me, even though it may look like he has. And they would rejoice even there. Theology matters. And here's the response that so many within the church give, and I'm going to pick on middle school boys, so guys, just buck up. (laughs) Take this one. Talking to a middle school boy, normally, there's some exceptions. So, how was your day? So, good day at school this week? Yeah. Well, you got cut from the soccer team. You want to tell me about that? Yeah. I notice you're, you're not hanging out with those friends anymore. Yeah. Let me just move it forward a little bit. So, tell me about what the sovereignty of God within the church, speaking to any church-going person. Yeah, well, yeah. Tell me how it is that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit held together beautifully, equally. You know, how can I be saved? Well, you know, we sound like uninformed adolescents within the church. And my encouragement to you would be the encouragement of Paul. Know your theology. Know it. Because it informs how you respond. And then we said theology links into worship. Look at this. Paul took his theology instead of his theology. Theology is not dusty and old. It's not sitting on a shelf somewhere. It is what informs how I respond to God. Look at the deep theological truths of the worship of the praise or the doxology of Paul. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. His judgments. Probably meaning, oh, his judgments of severity and kindness. His judgments against mankind, but yet his mercy within them. Oh, how unscrutable that is. It can't be traced out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who's given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Paul's theology informed how he responded to God. Just look at the five simple statements uh, that he looked in there. Paul didn't know how to worship without doctrine. And so his worship said this, this is why I worship, for I know that all things are from him and through him. Because God's riches and wisdom and knowledge are unfathomably deep, that he says this, from him, through him, to him are all things. That we take this to mean that the ultimate origin or ultimate cause or the ultimate decisive reason for everything is God. Everything is dependent for its existence on God. Ephesians 1, 11, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Romans 9, 16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Proverbs sixteen thirty three: the lot is cast into the lap but its, decision, its every decision is from the Lord. All things are from him and through him. Means 
As one writer put it, there is no explanation for what is or what happens that is deeper or more decisive than God. The practical upshoot of this for us is that we are utterly dependent upon God for all things. That we are utterly dependent upon Him for all things. And Paul began his worship, his praise with that. God, I'm dependent upon you for all things. Therefore, no one can give a gift to God so as to make him a debtor. That's what verse 35 implies. He asked the question, who can give a gift to him that he might be repaid? And the answer is a resounding, no one. Since all is from God and through God, and he owns all things, we can never give him anything that is not already his, which means that we can never put him into our debt. But yet, for so many of us, so many of you, you work hard to put God in your debt. God, I came to church today. God, I'm on vacation, and I came to church today. Gold star. God, I got dressed up and came to church with my family who drove me crazy all weekend. I tithed today. I even went to that 360 seminar, and I went to a meeting this morning for church. I'm going to serve in uh, the, um, you know, the, the ministries of the church. I'm going to do this. God, I'm here. And guess what happens when you leave here today, and you're heading back to wherever you're heading, and someone rear-ends you? You realize this, you've been working really hard to put God into a debtor position because your emotional response is often something similar to this. Really, God? After going to church today, after getting up and getting dressed and getting these knuckleheads that I call children my, uh, uh, to church and sitting with them and doing all this and tithing and giving, you're giving me a car wreck. You see, we work oh so subtly, but in incredibly complex, choreographed ways to make God a debtor. And if God is your debtor, you can't worship him. You're of more worth than him. And Paul was saying, no one can make him his debtor. No one. And he said there, at the end of that, he said, which is why... No one can give any counsel to God about how he should do things. I love this. John Piper in one of his sermons said this. You see, the specific thing that you cannot give to God here is counsel. And this is the one thing that sinners presume most often to give to God. Counsels. They don't offer love or delight or faith. They offer counsel. They tell God outright or by implication. I don't like the way you run the world, and I think you should do it like this. God, this isn't what I signed up for. I would have done marriage differently. I would have done parenting differently. I would have done my career differently. I would have done life differently. I would have done my family of origin differently. God, you're sort of messing up in the Middle East. God, this whole debacle that we call American politics, I, I would do it differently if you just advised with me first, God. Because I've got a better plan. And Paul says, who can give counsel to the Lord? His ways are inscrutable, unfathomable in their depth. Which means that, by the way, there is, if they're deep, there is something at the bottom. 
and it is his wisdom, but we just can't get all the way down to it. It is beyond us. He says, no one advises God. But we sit in this position of utter humility and dependence upon Him, which is why His ways and His judgments are unsearchable and inscrutable to our finite minds. God is beyond us. He does things utterly different from us. We look dimly as in a mirror, but one day face to face, we have such limited ability. And if you don't believe that, take time today and go to the beach and go and scoop up a handful of sand and hold it and go, God, not only can you know and do you know the grains of sand that I hold within my hand, but you know how many grains of sand there are on this beach and on the sum total of every beach within the world. Oh my goodness, you know more than I do. Your ways are so far past. And instead of being upset by that, Paul says, oh no, all of this, it leads me to this. For from him, through him, and to him are all things. Therefore, to him be glory forever. Not me. My life. And everything within the domains and spheres of influence that I have been given in this world, all of them have been given to me as a steward for a time to reflect and to send back to Him the glory that He deserves. That I haven't done anything. But it's all to Him and all to His glory. That word glory means weightiness. It means different. It means it's something about Him that is awesome in majesty. And in glory. You see, Paul's worship was informed by his theology. He was in the midst of this already talking about God's imminence and his transcendence and his all knowing, all powerful, all everywhere self led and compelled Paul to go, here's what I do know all things are for your glory. And that means I'm for your glory. By the way, folks, that gives your life and it gives your story incredible value. That this unknowing, knowable God who's rich in his depth of his knowledge and his plans are beyond ours is taking your story which you have determined is so messed up that it's beyond redemption. He's taking you with all of your warts and with all of your wounds and with all of what's happened in your life. And this incredible God is saying to you, that's the story that's going to bring me glory. And I made you. And I am redeeming your story. And I'm making it beautiful. And I'm making it meaningful. So don't you despise the story I gave you. Doesn't that lead you to worship him? Because how often do we live in a world that says your story stinks? Your story is a lesser story than my story. And you go and we compare and God is saying, look at this. I've given you your story. Maybe your story has cancer in it. Maybe it has abuse. Maybe it has death. Maybe it has divorce. Maybe it has addiction. Maybe it has whatever it has. He, this incredible, magnificent God, from whom and to whom and through whom are all things. 
is saying to you that story. If you allow me, I'll redeem and use for my glory. And many people will come to worship me because of you. Not in spite of you, but because of you. Oh. And then Paul says, you see, this theology over here leads me to worship him in this way and to praise him and to just be overwhelmed by him. I can't help but sing. I can't help but say amen. That's what Paul is saying. And he says, and it also informs how I'm supposed to live. Let me read this without the verse breaks and without the chapter breaks. Beginning in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? And who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him, through him, to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. It flows, doesn't it? Paul didn't start with chapter 12, 1. But that's where so many people go first. How am I supposed to live? I can't tell you how you're supposed to live until you first understand who you're supposed to live for. It doesn't make any sense for you to say no to these things and yes to these things unless you know the God who wrote all these things. And that from Him and to Him and for Him and they bring Him glory. So here's what I know. Your obedience... Your Christian life, your living in a way that brings him honor and glory, is an extension of your knowledge of him and your worship of him. You going out today and honoring the Lord in your life is an extension of your incredibly deep, theologically informed worship. And so when I used to ask college students at Rhodes College, So how did you worship God this week through your studies? And they would look at me like, what? Your studies. Did you worship God this week through your studies? Did you worship God this week through your marriage? Through your home life? Through your business practices? Through how you treated other kids on the playground? Through how you dealt with one another in your family. All of it, all of this is an act of my worship because I understand how awesome God is and all that has happened and all that He has done and the depths of the knowledge of who He is. I am so amazed by Him that when I look and now He says, hey Bill, don't get drunk and don't steal and don't commit adultery and don't covet and honor my day one day out of seven, and have no other idols before me, and don't take my name lightly, and serve me alone. Oh, that's it? I I can do that. 
And when I struggle to do that, instead of doubling down on your effort, double down on your beholding of Him. Go back to 1 through 11 if you're having trouble with 12 through 15. Don't just double down and go, more effort. Buck up. Come on. Let's go. Work harder. Just say no. It's hard to just say no for anyone. But it becomes easier in light of the surpassing greatness of who God is. It becomes easier, husbands, to love your wives as Christ loved the church when you have an understanding of how Christ loved the church and that you're part of that church. When you are called to love your wife sacrificially, you recognize how God has loved you sacrificially in His Son. It begins to give you a power and a motivation and an ability to do what you didn't think you could do. But if you start there in order to earn God's favor, you are going to wear yourself out. But if you begin with this truth, that God is for you, and that you know this, as one preacher put it, Morality in the Christian life is not simply the willpower to do right things because God has the authority to command them. Christian morality is the overflow of worshiping the sovereign, merciful God. Christian life is the fruit of a mind and a heart transformed by seeing and savoring the all-sufficient and sovereign, merciful God revealed to us in Jesus Christ. Savoring. When's the last time you savored something? Is that word even in your vocabulary? We got, I got back from South Africa and reconnecting with my family, that usually means a meal. So we got this grill, we went and got some meat, and we got some other things. And we cooked these huge steaks and we sat there at the dinner table and we had a wonderful wine and a great potato and a huge steak. And my family, at least the three of us, the other two are off in college, were sitting there and I savored it. Not just the food, but the moment of sitting in the moment of looking at my son enjoy his meal and looking at my wife and recognizing how blessed I am. And I savored it. My phone was off and it was over there. No distractions. Just a meal. When's the last time you savored something? The Christian life won't make sense until you've just savored God. You've let Him and His love marinate you flowing over you of the wealth of the knowledge of this God who says to you, I love you. I'm fighting for you. And I've got you all the way through to the end. Doesn't make it easier per se to go day to day. But it sure lets you have a place to run in the midst of difficult times. So now I'm going to invite the team to come on up. We're going to sing this great song.
familiar to us, we play it regularly. But behold our God, seated on His throne. Because when you behold Him and you savor Him, everything else starts to come together pretty well. Let's pray. God, thank You. Thank You for Your beauty and Your complexity and Your depth. Oh, the unsearchable nature of who You are. Thank You that we are created in Your image that we have the ability to know you, that you condescended enough to be known, to be knowable, but not fully, and we're thankful for the mystery. Father, I pray today there's some in here who are wrestling with you right now. They're wrestling with giving you counsel. They are having a hard time accepting what you have planned for them. Or they have been bartering with you for so long of God I'll do this and then expecting you to do something in return for them I pray that now they would simply behold you and that you by your spirit would overflow them and fill them and would they know maybe for the very first time a security in Christ and a peace that passes all understanding and it would guard their hearts and their minds in Christ Jesus. And would we sing today and behold our God. To him be the glory in the church. Amen. Let's stand and sing.